This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Corel Bashand. He is the founder of Barrel Hand. Corel, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Ariel. It has it's been a while since we we first met. I'm actually was trying to think like I could go look and 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 find it actually because you know you, there was an article that was posted about you. But like, what what year was it? It was how many years ago was it? <laughs> Um, I was probably, I think it was my freshman year in college that I ran into you. So it would have been, yeah, you were, you were, you were, you were <laughs> definitely in school. Um, and it was in the San Francisco Bay area. Yeah. Um, I guess the context was you decided that you wanted to make, I don't want to call it a replica, but you wanted to do your best to try to emulate an or work watch using whatever engineering skills you had at the time and whatever manufacturing was available to you. Was that more or less you're trying to do? Like, how did you describe it? Yeah, I, I would say it was almost like I, I saw, I wasn't really into watches prior, but I saw like their, their crazy like CGI exploded views that they do on YouTube of the UR202. And I was immediately like, man, I got to own one of these. And I didn't know what what was an expensive watch at the time. So for me, what I thought an expensive watch was was like five hundred bucks. So I was like, all right, I'll I'll save for it. And then, yeah, it ended up being like the price of a house. So I was like, all right, well, I can't. Yeah, own I mean, it. this is a <laughs> this is a hundred thousand dollar plus timepiece. <laughs> So that was a little reality right. so you're, check. So you're a college <laughs> kid. And I got into watches around the same time. I I was, I think, uh, 19 or 20, mm, maybe yeah. as late as 21. But I think I was about 19 or 20 when I got into watches. So it sounds a- around when the age you were at. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, I was probably 18, 19 when I, when I found watches, basically, and it was through this Airwork CGI video and then just opened up all these other... CGI videos of Christopher Claret or MBNF, Grubel Force, and they were all doing these these crazy renders at the time. Yeah, and they and and they don't do as many, but they had these. I mean, for people that don't remember, there was these. We'll just call them promotional videos, and a lot of them were uh, basically CGI animations made into like a brand promo film. So these would actually these come from software that helps builders and engineers visualize stuff. But then they they put like classical music behind it, <laughs> right? And <laughs> yeah, yeah. tried to make it sort of an emotional thing, and you know, and it's like, oh wow, this this is actually really cool. Um, and brands did that a lot. But then I think people use that to figure out too much about how the watches are made. So maybe they did it less, or yeah. what, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I think for a lot of people, it was like the new trend technology at the time of being able to show off. A mechanical watch into like an entire cityscape basically it was just a giant uh, landscape of gears and you know things that i i don't think people really understood the complexity until it was zoomed in at that level right so you saw it and it immediately captured your attention you saw a few more of them and then you were romanced into it but you did something that i guess others wouldn't is you formed an interest, you formed a desire to buy, you formed, you know, the resentment that you couldn't afford it and you may never <laughs> afford it. But then you you did something else, right? You didn't just stop there and say, well, I like watches, I'll save up and I'll get something cool. You made a different decision. What 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 went through your mind? Yeah. So I would say from there, it was more of I, I realized I couldn't go about owning it at the time. And so I decided, okay, well, I had just been pretty familiar with uh, SolidWorks, which is like a 3D modeling program for engineering. And I knew enough at the time, like I was making like car engines and like other mechanical things already. So I said, let me try to like recreate it, this watch on the computer so that I can like play around with it digitally. So there was no, at the time there was no plan of like, oh, I'm going to manufacture it or 
anything of that nature. It was just, let me just try to make a digital version of it so I can look at all the intricacies of it and kind of geek out on all the engineering that went into it, just kind of as a a fan of what they were doing. So it wasn't to replicate it per se. You just wanted to use this thing that you're interested in in combination with the software you're learning because it's sort of like if you're starting to build with Legos, you have to have something in mind that you're going to build, right? Like just having a bunch of Legos isn't enough. <laughs> and you were just, I mean, again, I'm just trying to understand the psychology here is that you had these new tools and then you also had, we'll call it, you know, an artistic inspiration to use those tools for, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Is that what was going on? Because again, I, I think it's so interesting and important because Nobody is like, the world needs more watches. I better get into that. <laughs> it's a different avenue to dedicating your time. It's it's not quite art. It's not quite traditional industrial design. It's some intersection of the two. And I want to impress upon people as often as I can how kind of strange it is where these otherwise smart people using very functional tools use all this not to, you know, solve cancer research, but to (laughs) make another fun thing on your wrist, which again is very satisfying and rewarding and ultimately does help the world. But it's a very interesting thought process that you're, that you're going through. It's not the same as someone who, again, takes a little bit more traditional ambitious route with, uh, with engineering, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I think for me, it's, I saw it as just, it was like the ultimate engineering feat for me. It was you know, how do you scale something as complex as like, I don't know, like a Lamborghini engine and you just put it into something the size of a wrist. And it was just, it was mind boggling to me. One, that there was enough engineering know-how and manufacturing know-how to even make something like that. Uh, But then the fact that there was artistic side of people wanting to pursue that, spend 10 years doing, like you said, more or less something that doesn't serve an inherent purpose, but just for the sake of doing and seeing if you can make it happen. Now, you said you wanted to do the ultimate engineering project, which I guess is a good ambition. But you said yourself, you're 18, 19 years old, you're, you know, not even halfway through your, you know, college degree. What made you want to do the ultimate as opposed to you know, something that was a little bit more reachable. Like, I'm just curious, like, what made, <laughs> what, what is it in your personality that said, I'm going to do something crazy? You may have not even known, but, you know, discuss that. Yeah, yeah. I I wasn't really thinking about it that way. I think it was just, I saw something that captured my imagination so much that it was just all I could think about. And it was just, like, opened up this new world. It's kind of like, I don't know, you hear people speak passionately about a hobby or interest that maybe you've never even heard about. And then you realize it's this entire world uh, that, yeah, you just didn't know existed. So it just completely absorbed me. And I wasn't thinking of, oh, this will be the most challenging or this would be maybe I should start with something else. It was just that was the thing that I wanted to figure out and and learn everything there was to know about uh, that watch in particular. And so for me, it was just kind of like a deep dive of not worrying about how far I could get with it, but just figuring out what it would take to make it happen. Now, on the Swiss luxury you know, side of things, they often make things that they don't want to make easy to replicate. Um, Orwork especially is trying to do they're trying to do things other people haven't done. They're trying to do things that requires the sort of like most advanced manufacturing. They're dealing with tiny tolerances, textures, materials, you know, all kinds of things that are, are very, very challenging. Did you realize at the time you weren't just trying to copy a watch, but you're trying to copy a watch that was in a sense made so that it's hard to copy? Yeah, I, I think it wasn't it wasn't something I was inherently thinking about at the time that it would be something immensely complex that they wouldn't necessarily want recreated. It was more of, yeah, I I guess it was more of, to me, I just thought it was the coolest like piece of engineering that 
it, it was it was more of like an engineering challenge that I saw that someone had accomplished. And I figured if someone had already done it, then I could kind of understand the inner workings and just figure out all the thought and effort that went into making it happen. Because I think a lot of these on the surface, they look, I, I guess they package it to look simpler than it is in a way. And for Urwerk, they kind of, you know, show off. It's more of like a Rube Goldberg machine, kind of like MBNF, where there's all these things going on, but they still package it to where it looks fairly simple. And I think seeing, trying to figure out the inner workings is what really like captured me. Okay, so what? So you were basically just intellectually curious. You recognized that you wanted your life to be something in engineering, and this just provided you with a lot of intellectual substance to try a lot of things. And again, that's okay. I just, again, I like having these conversations because people always want to know, like, how does someone get into this? Now, you're not a watchmaker, right? Let's, yeah. let's clarify that. You're not, you weren't studying to be a watchmaker. For you, it wasn't even watchmaking. For you, it was, it was you know, engineering, product design, which watchmaking is. But these days, a lot of people who get into the world of horology do so in this roundabout way, not because like, well, my grandfather was a watchmaker <laughs> and I really appreciate the art form. It's, I don't even know what a watchmaker does. I never even necessarily think of the concept of watchmaking, but there's these complicated you know, machines out there uh, in the form of exotic high-end watches that capture my imagination. I'd like to get into that. And I think that's so important because for the watchmakers of tomorrow, that's probably how they're going to get into it other than there was a watchmaking school in my town and I decided to go to it. Like, cause that's, that's not how it works anymore for most people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of new opportunities that people have now, not just like the access of information. Like you could read about just about anything that goes on inside a watch or how it's made online but then there's also a lot more access of like how you could get it made too. I'm going to say something that's important right now, and you probably have some experience here, but when you want to make a watch from scratch, the cards are stacked against you. It's not just a matter of difficulty. It's literally the suppliers and other companies out there are protective of what they do and don't want you to easily replicate it. And if you go to them for help or services, they might smile and take your money, but they don't ultimately want to help you most of the time unless you've spent a huge amount of money over time or had some good relationship with them. Like to go ahead and build a watch, even a simple one that looks nice and is fairly priced is something that seems to be an extremely uphill battle. Have you, you know, how early on did you have direct access to those types of experiences that sort of taught you that? Because you had a lot of trials and tribulations, right? You you attempted, and this, you know, kind of segues into another part of the conversation was, you know, you designed, uh, you know, designed watches, you try to get it made. But I want to go back a little bit. So think about that. Let's let's go back a little bit to this Orwork project. We never really finished that because you ended up actually producing a thing that was relatively impressive. So, so go back to the phase where you're playing around in SolidWorks. How do you go from there to, I want to actually try to build one of these? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's interesting because the way that you were describing it too, I think a lot of those obstacles weren't immediately obvious to me. And so the, the naiveness of just being a college student and thinking you can make recreate these these crazy engineering feats was i think what got me far enough to where i was already committed and felt like okay well now i'm this far i can probably figure out the next step and so from making the design on the computer i had like the whole 3d model and it was at that point that i realized like okay i i how I had a working model of it on my computer after about a year of, of doing all the design work. And that, that was when I realized like, okay, you know, technically all the files are here. I would just need to find a way to manufacture it. And I think that was the first big hurdle that I encountered. Cause I didn't know anything about manufacturing prior. 
uh, to working on that project. And there's a lot of people who get to this phase, and I see this a lot, where you have this belief, like, I can do it. I can make this, I can replicate this. And through, you know, I guess some confidence and, and naivete, you, you just sort of get yourself into it until you realize, wow, I didn't even know what I was trying to do. And, and here's where I think it, things get even more interesting. Some people quit because they're like, I'm, I'm going to give up. But others, you know, keep going. And that's what you did. And, you know, so, so just tell the story in whatever way you want to of making this replica or work. It's not like a perfect replica, but you more or less took a movement, created a little module, made this thing work. Like you haven't really talked too much about it, but that was a big deal. Uh, you know, discuss the story of, of making that, uh, that hobby or work, so to say. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I think, yeah, it was after a year. So I was still a freshman in college and I was having this 3D model on my computer and I was pretty excited about it. It was cool to see like, you know, this, this dream watch that I had been kind of like fanboying over for the past year was on my computer more or less. And I could play around with the satellite hours, the rotating barrels, the like telescoping hands, like everything in theory was working on the computer. And so I had this, you know, and you built this, you built a model from scratch. Yeah, yeah. So I would say to go back like a few steps, um, the way that I went about it was obviously they don't have the blueprints to an airwork online. So I just started putting together like hundreds of pictures of the airwork 202 and just kind of finding different angles and ultimately getting like a top view, a side view and a front view and then just kind of being able to proportion everything from there because I knew the overall dimensions of the watch. So visually, I could recreate everything on my computer. But I would say the biggest challenge was how do you get something that's a visual model into something that's functional? So figuring out the gear ratios from the movement, figuring out how the satellite uh, hour system works, the telescoping hands... Uh, I would say that was probably a bulk of the time was figuring the mechanical side of all of that. Now, there's a lot of people that maybe are younger and start using the software, but they seem to have this belief that if you make something work in software, then you can make it work <laughs> in real life. Why, why is that? I mean, isn't that sort of the first thing they tell you in school is like if it works, you know, in the software space, that's only one step because I, I've, I've encountered this time and time again where they're like, oh, so well, working on CAD, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can make all this stuff in CNC machines, but that, yeah, yeah. it takes more to make a watch. Yeah, yeah. And I like that you know that side of it too, where it's like, even if you have the most perfect model, like the idea that you're going to get it right the first time is, I, I, I think from an engineer's perspective, we're very like, it's all ones and zeros. And so if you see like a perfect model on the computer and all the parts fit just right, you, you can't, you can't have the foresight of figuring out why that's not going to work on the first prototype. Because to you, it's like, Oh, you know, in my mind, I had all the parts figured out, all the spacing was good. So I was like, all right, plug and play. You just, you know, send it to a machine shop or something. And, and it'll work itself out. And really, it was like so many prototype iterations to get it to where it was even remotely functional. I want to I want to stop you right here. And again, just use this as an example for other contexts which are similar. There are many people, you know, like Corel, who had this belief, whether it was fleeting or sincere, that I can replicate or I can make this thing using the tools that I have. And usually they're younger and usually they have a little bit less experience. And so what you have in this industry is sort of these two camps. You have the one camp of brand new novices that have these ambitious ideas and try things that they actually can't finish based upon what they had when they started. They might have the ingenuity to find ways of finishing it. And then on the other side, you have people that are like very mature, 
very experienced and said, okay, I've gone through the entire process. I know it's realistic. I know it's not realistic. I'm going to build what I know how to build. And so what you have is these young people with these very ambitious ideas and these older people with much more conservative ideas because they're a little bit more realistic on what can be done. Not a lot in the middle. And that's actually why I think you have watches on those two spectrums. You have the very conservative ones that are sort of beautiful and elegant and non-offensive because they're from people that have been doing this for a lifetime. And then you have the wild stuff that comes from the younger minds who want this thing to exist. And when they're de designing it, they naively believe it can be made. <laughs> Once they run into hurdles, like, wait a minute, there's actually – you know, some compelling reasons why, you know, physics and material science needs to come in here. Many of them sort of like, you know, duck out and like, uh oh, I don't know what I got myself into. But once in a while, and you're one of those people, you're like, no, I don't want to be said it can't be made. I want to keep going. And, and, and what is it? Is it that, is it the world saying to you, Corel, you can't do it, that motivates you? Or is it something else? Like, I'm just curious, what pushes you to keep this project going, even though you know it's going to be a huge pain and there's a high likelihood of failure? Yeah, I think, I think it was almost the inverse. It was, I, I wasn't even, I, I was just very naive to the challenges. And, and so it was just kind of wishful thinking in a way of, seeing what the like overarching goal was and breaking it into smaller steps. And, and I would say in a way it was always driven by not having a particular end goal and more of a, it was like my own personal hobby or challenge for, for those two years I was in college. So it was like, I would come back from class and if I didn't want to do, I don't know, like, thermodynamic homework or something that was, you know, draining me, I would, I would do this, this engineering project because it was just something fun and cool. I could work on, on my own time. And there wasn't a deadline and there wasn't a particular end goal. I, I mean, you could say, oh, I wanted to have a working model at the end, but it was more of just something I was doing uh, for fun on the side, kind of how people work on cars and obviously they want the goal to be okay the car is running at the end of it but really it was kind of the process of learning about every component and taking things apart and putting them back together that was the the joy for me and so there wasn't this letdown of oh if I can't get to this goal I'm going to be disappointed it was just enjoying the process of learning everything that they put into that watch so in 2014 is when a blog to watch published the article about your your or work UR202 homage. How many years in total did it take from the start of this to the finish? And and how did you get this thing made? You know, just describe to people um, what you ended up doing. Because you didn't you didn't build a, a, a per se one-to-one -one replica, but what you did is build a functional homage, it told the time, which was you know, as close as you can make it. So in your words, how close was it? How long did this take? Um, just for people that aren't familiar with this side of the story, give, give a few more details. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think from when I started, I want to say, yeah, freshman year of college, I basically spent two years on it. One year was like the 3D modeling side. And then the next year was the manufacturing side. And the hard part, about the manufacturing side was I didn't know anything about manufacturing. And so at first I was looking at like CNC machine shops to like get these parts done, but they're so small, precise one-off parts that it was just crazy expensive. So I was like, all right, that's not a feasible path for me. So that's kind of how I fell into 3D printing. So I found some companies I started working with to help 3D print certain parts. Um, one of them was called Shapeways. It's just like a online service center, basically for 3D printing different materials. Um, they're kind of like I don't know the the Amazon of of 3D printing world. And okay, and so I just started printing parts and prototyping. And after yeah, maybe 18 prototypes, I finally got something that was not only like visually very similar, but 
uh, was like a fully functional watch. And I think for me, I was really particular about having it be an accurate uh, tribute because I didn't want to, I, I feel like whenever you see, I don't know, like you see those kit cars that people sell for, uh, I don't know, like, a, a Ferrari and it's like, you just can tell it's like really bad proportions and it just feels distasteful. It just looks like a, I, I don't know. I, I didn't want that energy to be associated with this project. I really wanted to do a faithful tribute to the original. And so I spent a lot of time making sure that by scaling the proportions properly, everything uh, visually was extremely accurate, um, you know, down to like every single component uh, that you could see uh, on the display, uh, on the case back, and just making sure it was a faithful tribute to the original. And then, yeah, the mechanical side was its own kind of problem solving that I had to do myself because they didn't have the blueprints online, obviously. And I would say by the end of it, yeah, about two years in the works, I had done 18 prototypes to where it was more or less, uh, you know, a fully functional watch. It didn't have the telescoping hands, but the satellite system was working and uh, it was still like half 3D printed. So, so there was like some components that were uh, like 3D printed metal. There was some that was CNC machines. So it was kind of this uh, collaboration. But the, the main like standout, I would say, is that I didn't know anything about finishing. So it was a very... Uh, like non-finished version you could say <laughs> very prototype looking it's it's been a while since it's been on my wrist about a decade now but i remember it um <laughs> and it was fun uh, so what, here's another question when did you become public with it because i think that's a very interesting part of your journey is you know you do it by yourself for a while but at some point you started to share this project and kind of got integrated into the watch community you were young and uh, not really a watch collector at the time. Talk a little bit about, you know, when you first started going public with it and um, what was the sort of avenue that that, that drew us uh, together? Yeah, yeah. I, I just kind of started documenting it on Instagram and, and kind of going through. It, it was just for me, it was like my own personal blog and I was just kind of sharing what was working, what was not. Uh, each prototype iteration kind of just posting pictures almost like documenting it for myself it was just kind of a platform and then I remember I forget what the it was probably like I think there was like a a brigade event or something in the city in San Francisco and I remember you were there and someone had told me oh Ariel Adams is is at the event and I got really nervous <laughs> I was like oh man I really want to show him this this Erward project I've been working on. And so I remember kind of like pulling together, I think, photos. I might have had the prototype on at the time, too. But I remember approaching you just to... It, it wasn't, you know... It, I just figured, like, okay, here's someone that's, like, super knowledgeable about watches and is like the the guy in the watch industry and for me it was like a big deal of like okay i'm kind of like presenting this this thing that i've been showing for a while that i think most people hadn't really seen or heard about in the watch industry and just hoping that you thought it was pretty cool too because i was already geek at geeking out on it a lot okay so um and, and again you're right i've been pitched many many times before so what what was my reaction <laughs> I remember you you were pretty like uh, I wouldn't say confused but just surprised of of what I was showing you because it wasn't I don't know it wasn't like a, a Seiko mod or or something generic it was pretty out of the box and I wouldn't say there was like anything similar that had been done before it was also like a lot of 3D printed parts so it was a pretty new technology at the time so the idea of you know, taking a six-figure watch and not just 3D printing like a visual model, but getting, you know, I was showing you the mechanism. And yeah, it was really cool. I remember we we kept talking and I think we went out for, for drinks after or something like that. 
Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I was just curious, and I like you know per- personalities that dedicate themselves to something like this is really what this industry is based on. So it's like it's not even so much what someone does, even though that's important. It's the demonstration that they want to try this, that they put time into it. And I I recall thinking that I needed to sort of introduce you to Orwork because even though it was a bit of a strange thing, it was very, very flattering. And I thought that you would want to meet them. And um, mm. so I, th- I remember that that happened and I, and I set up a meeting and I think, but just r- remind me, what was it like connecting with Orwork, meeting with them? What was their reaction? Because you're, you're right, this didn't happen all the time. There weren't people out there making homages to Orworks. Uh, talk about, you know, finally meeting with them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I think just in general, too, presenting it or like sharing it with you, too. I I was really happy to see that you also understood where I was coming from, that it wasn't like, oh, I'm just trying to make a, a knockoff Richard Mill or like, you know, it wasn't to make money off of it or try to like sell something off of it. It was really just like. I was just an absolute fan of what they were doing and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And I I was really happy to see that you also understood that this was just like a passion project for me and something that I was just a huge fan of, of what they were doing. And I remember you, you published the article and I think it was not even like two or three days later, you, you sent me an email like, Oh, Erwerk wants to meet with you. And it felt like very surreal because I had just been working on this project in isolation for two years. So although I was very close to this watch, I felt very distant from the watch industry or just Erwerk in general. It was just kind of like they were the, I don't know how people have like a Ferrari poster on their wall. That was kind of how Erwerk was to me. And so when I got an email saying they wanted to fly me out to Switzerland during SIHH. That was like, oh, I was, <laughs> I was overjoyed. That was very surreal for me. I re- I recommended that to them. I I, I told <laughs> them. I mean, I mean, I I I shared you with them. Part of it was, as you said, to make it clear to them what your intentions were, because it's it can be easy to come to the wrong conclusion, but also because I was like, you know, you should try to tap into this person's energy. This is a this is a friend, and uh, it also makes you look good. When someone loves you enough to pour all this time and effort into it, it's kind of a validator of your effort, right? So I, I just thought there was sort of a win-win there. Yeah, yeah, and I was happy that, that they saw it that way too because I, I don't think there's many companies that would be open and like understanding of of where it's coming from. Obviously, if it was like AP or, or Patek, you know, it it wouldn't have been the same experience at all, but because they're also just, you know, huge fans of what they do and they're really passionate and just engineers and designers at the end of the day, I think, or we're kind of, they, they welcomed me with open arms and I was really grateful for that, that I also had the medium of you to kind of share the story and kind of like uh, show them where where I was coming from too. Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch with a message from eBay, a platform I probably use daily. Make sure your watches are the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guarantee. I believe it's the first and best service of its kind that protects your luxury purchases and checks each watch individually at eBay's highly reputable authentication partner, Stolen Company, in the United States. From band to bezel, their authenticators ensure each wristwatch matches the eBay listing and is the real deal. Authenticity guarantee is also very fast. Once authentication is complete, your watch is securely delivered via rapid two-day shipping. Surprisingly, eBay's authenticity guarantee service is free for all watches priced $2,000 and up. No one should buy a luxury item without an authenticity guarantee. Do what I do and check eBay before each watch purchase because everyone deserves real. And then after that experience, I don't know exactly all the things that went through your mind, but you decided that you wanted to design your own watch, right? You did the homage, and that led into the creation of the brand Barrel Hand. And now you, you know, 10 years on, um, are, are a, a, a watch industry entrepreneur. You sold out of your 
first collection of watches, uh, Project One, and we did a hands-on of that back in, in 2020. Now it's a couple of years later and you have something else coming up. But I really want to just sort of hear you speaking about that initial phase of deciding, I want to take what I learned and I want to apply it into something else and then actually getting done. So just talk about sort of what was going through your mind and how you decided um, to start Barrelhand. Yeah, I, I think that trip was really inspiring for me. Um, just meeting my idols at the time and hearing them talk so passionately about each watch that they had put together, the design behind it, the thought, it was more than just, you know, I could feel that for them, it wasn't, you know, now it's a business, but at the time it was really like, they just wanted to make a really cool watch that they were inspired by. And obviously everyone wants to like eventually turn it into something that they can make a living off of, but you could tell they like, no matter how successful it would just like oozed passion out of them. And they were, they were willing to work on these things, you know, regardless, it was just something that was innate to them. And hearing them talk uh, so passionately was really inspiring for me. And um, it was also cool, you know, hearing other engineers have this kind of like artistic creative side to them. And we had talked about, internships and you know maybe like setting something up but at the time remote work wasn't a thing and I was still finishing up my college degree so we kind of put it aside and said okay well maybe when I graduated I could go out to Switzerland or something like that but we just kind of left it at that and I remember on the flight back I was just so like I wouldn't say riled up but just so like excited by like the the inspiration that they passed on to me that I really wanted to take what I had learned and put it into something that I was really passionate about, not just, you know, recreating and learning from someone else's work, but kind of embarking on my own engineering challenge and trying to figure it out along the way. So you have all this energy, you have all this confidence, you have all this enthusiasm. And, and where do you take it from there? Because it is easy to copy something else that is done. It is harder to come up with something unique. You understood implicitly at that time that having a unique idea was was crucial. Talk a little bit about some of the mental steps and the things you did to get to the point where like, okay, now I know what to do. Yeah, so I think at first I was just kind of doing sketches. Uh, like the whole flight back, I was just doodling in my sketchbook and just coming up with, things that I hadn't seen in the watch industry before and not even the watch industry, just things that I wanted to make that I think were cool. And at the time I was really into car engines. So I was kind of like thinking of pistons or just, I liked the idea of a lot of moving parts. That was definitely like a big part of it was having some type of mechanical system or some type of cool visual display so I was sketching away and it wasn't until like two months later, I was in my fluid mechanics class, I think. And I was just doodling away. I wasn't really paying attention. I was just completely absorbed with trying to come up with a cool concept. And that was when I, I sketched like the very first, uh, you can say like rough draft of project one. So you had this idea, you figured something out. You're like, okay, I got something cool. I got something original. How many years or whatever period of time you want to use to measure it, did it take between I want to start my own brand and you having a final sellable product? I mean, there's so many things that happen in the middle of there. <laughs> but again, I try to demonstrate to people the time frames that this can take, especially when you're doing it on your own. Like, what, what are we talking about here? Yeah, so I think from the initial sketch, I spent about, I would say, like a year to two years refining it on the computer to where I had a really good visual like model of it and everything was working theoretically on the computer. But then the next step obviously was to uh, start prototyping it. So it was just a lot of trial and error and I was documenting it on Instagram and just kind of troubleshooting it as I was going along. But 
it was. You must have learned a lot from the Orwork thing, right? Like you couldn't, <laughs> yeah. this wouldn't have been doable. It sounds like you kind of replicated that. You obviously, you know, you you knew more, but you got to the same point where you're like, okay, now it works in CAD. You didn't have something to build off of. It was your own thing, so you had to be original. But then you needed to make something. What made you think that you were going to be better off the second time around than the first time around? I, I think having like the flow of operations was really helpful because I knew I knew how to like model things really well on the computer and I had had like a little bit of experience prototyping and 3D printing so I knew I was in the right direction um, but I think the biggest challenge was okay how do you take it's it's one thing to get something working but how do you make it reliably work to where it's not just a functional model but a really good functioning model and i think that was the biggest challenge was even by i think the first like kind of working prototype was like uh it was prototype version 12 and then by the time it was working pretty good i would say it's prototype 18 and it wasn't until the 23rd prototype where I had something that was like reliably and consistent, consistently working to where I felt and really good. And this is for good. the, the barrel hand project one. It's the 23rd prototype. Yeah. 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 Of project one. Now, now these are prototypes. They're not built by you in a machine shop. You had to get parts made by disparate suppliers, I'm guessing. It had to be shipped to you. Maybe you could go pick some up. And then you'd have to assemble something and see if it were. I'm just I'm trying to understand the process here because 23 prototypes without having even having a factory sounds like a lot without having a factory. Like there you you apparently have a patience and vision that exceeds that patience level of most people. I'm just guessing. <laughs> I, I think a big part of it was the accessibility of manufacturing that I had kind of discovered through 3D printing, it felt okay. a lot more reasonable. It, I mean, if I was trying to CNC machine each prototype, I just wouldn't have had the budget to do it. It was just, I was still in college. So for me, it was, you know, every every prototype really counted and I had to make sure that it was cost-effective and if I was CNC and were, were you machine, assembling? Yeah, yeah, I was doing everything. Okay, so I just want everyone to understand this. You were buying parts from suppliers. You were you were designing the file. You were making the file because you had the understanding. You would send this file off to supplier with some parameters, and you would and yes, you would talk to them. But in a sense, you kind of hope and pray that they would do what they say they would do, right? Yeah, yeah, and and I think for the most part, they were so like small batch parts that it wasn't it was more accessible than you know trying to place an order of like some big production because for me i was just ordering screws off of like mcmaster which is like an engineering type website where they sell screws and washers and stuff so i was just ordering screws ordering sapphire glasses off ebay at the time just for prototyping i was just finding whatever was cheapest and then basically assembling them uh, more or less in my dorm room as the the factory floor for the first <laughs> two years. Now, again, this is interesting because this process, uh, obviously you had to have a lot of ingenuity and, and confidence in your own skills, but it requires planning out a whole structure because you need all these parts, you need all these tools, you need all these things to work. Is it something special about your personality uh, did you grow up in an environment that facilitated that? Um, it's it's not it's not a common trait for anyone to have, let alone at that age. It's obviously ingrained in your personality, and I'm really pointing it out because I try to demonstrate to people these special personality elements are necessary to just do any of this stuff. It doesn't matter if it's your project or others, right? So talk about that behavior. Don't do you agree that that's something that your peers probably couldn't do? I think to a degree, I, I think for me, I think the biggest thing is when someone finds something that they're just fanatic about, it's like you're not thinking about the challenges or what's involved or 
how many prototypes you need to do. You just, that's all you want to do. And it was, for me, it was just a hobby. Even with project one, I wasn't at any point, it wasn't really like, oh, I need to turn this into a business. I was just, I want to make a really cool watch for myself. And, you know, at the very worst case, I'll get to wear a watch that I designed from scratch by myself. And if I sell one or two, that would be awesome. But it wasn't even the goal going into it. It was just, let me just make the coolest watch I can that, that I'm really excited about. And that but was But you can see the from the force. outside, yeah, right? Yeah. Like the idea that I had to go out there and spend X amount of hours hunting on eBay for parts that may work, right? That I had <laughs> yeah, to go yeah. out there and hunt for suppliers whose products I pay for individually made may function. And then once I have all these parts, I have to put them together and have a result. Like, you know, if you look at it from that perspective and you measure the hours and all the things, as many people would do, they'd be like, this sounds... This sounds like a terrible use of time, <laughs> right? And, yeah, yeah. And that's fair. That's fair. You're, you're, you know, you're, you are talking about the right way. It was passion that drove you. It was the execution of the vision. You wanted that thing done, but the route to get there is fraught with all these hurdles and things like that. And most people would give up along the way, even if they have the same desire as you do. Once they start to run in these things, but the fact that you know. It, in prototype 17, for example, that you didn't give up there. You're like, okay, going to move on to 18 <laughs> and 19 and 20. Like that's, you know, like when, when, when you're fighting uh, in like boxing and like you, you go down a certain number of times, that's it. This is like a boxer getting up two dozen times after being hit down and everyone in the audience is like, really again? I mean, that's <laughs> kind of what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that, that feeling for me didn't come up during the prototyping because of how accessible I had just figured out 3d printing. So the prototype iterations felt very smooth and kind of just for me, it was like a problem solving endeavor, but, but I would say where this kind of like constant getting knocked down phase came in was trying to manufacture the watch for real. So, so at this point I had, you know, 3D printed all these prototypes. I had uh, a really good working model. And so now I thought, okay, well, the next step is just, you know, take it to a manufacturer and they'll make the watch for me, basically. And I didn't know anything about production. So I thought, okay, I have all these files. I had all the technical drawings, the tolerances. Um, basically, everything was good to go. I just needed someone to manufacture it. And I thought that would be super easy. I thought I was basically done with the project at that point. Uh, but that was not the case. But that's <laughs> where the real work began. I, I think that's where it felt more like an uphill battle because it was a lot of new territory for me. And it also gets more expensive at that point. And I didn't have the funding for it at the time. And I, I think the biggest blow for me was like having something that to me was basically done in my eyes and then realizing I probably had a lot more work ahead that felt uh, defeating, I would say. And I started shopping for quotes. I was, you know, doing cold emails to all these factories in Switzerland because they were the hub for all of this. And yeah, it was just, it was discouraging, I would say, because they they have the monopoly on this, right? So, you know, whatever they want to charge. And, and for me, a project that I was trying to do this, like, it's pennies for them anyway. So they don't, one, they don't really take it seriously. And two, the, the amount of upfront money you would need to even start it was just astronomical. I can, I can give you an example of one where it was like, and, and this was... Please pretty pretty normal i would say where i it was just the upfront r&d costs was you know six figures of for them it was like okay well you have this working prototype sure but how do we know it works 
how do we know that if we manufacture production, basically they, they felt liable, which is understandable. So they, they wanted to charge, you know, six figures just to, just to confirm that my prototyping and design work was, was correct. And then if that passes, then they would charge me, I don't know, like 10, I'm not going to say the actual number, but they, they said something, you know, tens of thousands per unit. And I had to order a minimum of, I don't know, 25 or, or 50 units or something like that. So it was, you know, right up the bat, I was realizing, okay, this is, you know, half a million or a million dollars uh, to do. And I felt like I already did all the work. So I was just I, one, even if I, I somehow magically found an investor, I had the financial means to do something like that. It just felt like not even worthwhile to put so much money into something like that. It just felt like a huge leap of faith. So it, it didn't resonate with me as the right direction. And I was just really crushed as to, okay, well, if the Swiss can't, or the Swiss can manufacture it, but I can't afford what they're charging, then I felt like I kind of hit a wall. And I, I remember that was a pretty low point for me. I'm sorry to hear that. I can understand how frustrating that is. And to make you feel better, I think it's important to say that a lot of those suppliers in Switzerland, they they charge more than they need to just to do the work. What I mean by that, it's a more complicated calculus to them. They don't want to uh, just mess around with someone who's just being experimental and not really sure what they want to do. And usually what they'll, they'll do to judge that is, you know, how much money you're are, are you willing to put into it? Right. So if you have a lot of money, you seem serious. If not, they don't want to waste their time. A lot of it is also protecting their existing clients. They make something amazing for somebody brand new and without a lot of money. The existing clients are like, wait a minute, it took us all these big orders and all this big stuff like that. So they always have to protect the business models that they have with their sort of big volume clients. You know, you're never going to be a volume client. And on top of that, you know, you're an outsider. Uh, there is a real desire in Switzerland to keep a lot of know-how and expertise uh, within Switzerland. Uh, and if you are someone who outside who is coming and wants it, you're going to pay dearly. Remember, the important thing when it comes to protecting their clients is making sure that if you make something even if it's amazing, it's going to cost a fortune. They right. don't want you to have something which is reasonably priced. They want you to have to charge so much money for it that that it's not going to be a threat to their clients. Because it's really easy to say like, oh, yeah, I know that's not that client to someone else, but it's small production, very, very high end, very, very niche, nothing for you guys to worry about. And, you know, that's a, that's a very real situation that, that they have. So, you, you had good intentions going there, but again, you didn't know that the cards were so stacked against you. So what did you do next? Yeah, yeah, I, I think I, I was definitely discouraged and it was to a point where this was one of those stages where I, I had spent almost a year uh, cold emailing and reaching out to people to more or less find a, a one-stop shop that could take a design and make it a reality. And I think what was frustrating was I knew how much work I had put into it. And it wasn't just like I had a, a, a pencil drawing on paper that I was trying to get made. I had every single part down to the tolerances, like spec'd out. Everything was good to go. I just needed like all the design and guesswork had more or less been taken care of. And I just needed someone to copy the files uh, and CNC machine them to the tolerances that I had specified. And, and I was willing to, you know, take the loss of if it didn't work out, then that's, you know, that's on me. That's not the manufacturer's fault. But if they follow the specs, then I was confident that it should be good to go. So there's a lot more of the story to tell, and we have about five more minutes. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm so glad that we went into so much detail here with everything. And again, you know what? We'll probably have to have you back on the show. But <laughs> the long, the, make a long story short, and I think next time we'll probably have to talk more about you know American manufacturing and, and getting stuff made. But the long story short is you 
you, you manage to figure it out using a combination of other suppliers, some novel manufacturing techniques such as 3D printing and things like that, 3D printed metal. And through a lot of ingenuity, you, you got it done and you have you know, the, the barrel hand brand and you're on to project two. I mean, Corel, congratulations. <laughs> you not only made the watches, you sold them and you're on to number two with a real brand. And, and would you agree that's where you're at right now? You you yeah. have a real watch brand? That's what you wanted so long ago? Yeah, yeah. It feels real. And it's it's cool to just to see other people interested, not only in U.S. manufacturing, but that people were also uh, excited about Project One. So so we since then, we, we sold out of Project One. Um, we ended up manufacturing everything in the U.S. Um, so we set up... Everything? Yeah, I, I mean... The only catch, obviously, is the the base engine. So we're using a base, a turn of 39 uh, movement from Switzerland. Um, and then we had some 3D printed components out in Germany. But uh, I, I would say, you know, the CNC machining we had done in Oregon. Um, we had leather workers out in Arizona, and she did hand-stitched bison leather. Um, the sapphire glass we were getting from Guild Optics, uh, also in the U.S. Um, the jewels were from the U.S., the screws, the gaskets in the U.S., um, all the precision CNC machining, uh, and then even the watchmaking, the final hand finishing. Um, we found these super talented people out in Connecticut, uh, Brad and Jack from G&D Watchmaking, and uh, they're around my age, and these guys are amazing the the things they work on they're they're fixing patek perpetual calendars and when they're not doing that they were uh helping me put together the whole uh final touches on project one from assembly and hand finishing so uh yeah big kudos to them and just all the talented people we have here in the u.s i I think that was a big learning from project one was realizing manufacturing can be decentralized and it doesn't have to be using the old hubs or the old guard. Like we have so many talented people here in the U S in all niche aspects of what it takes to make a watch. It's just connecting the dots. It's just bringing those people together. And it it took almost two years to build that supply chain. But at the end of it, we, we made a super cool watch. Um, it was small batch. We only made 10 pieces, but we sold out of them. And every, everyone along the way had a lot of fun working on their sub-component or sub-assembly of the bigger piece. Right. Why, why only that amount? I mean, obviously, you promised people to make a small amount. Why not make a revision to it, an upgraded model later on? I mean, is that is that done, done, and you're never going to go back to it? I don't plan on... I'm going back to it. I th- I think for me, I really want to treat it as a a reasonable stepping stone and a learning tool. So for for us and everyone involved, it was a research platform to kind of test the supply chain, test the manufacturing technology. We we're using a lot of new uh, steel 3D printing that we were really interested in learning about, and so. We treated it really like a concept car, a research project, and we wanted to make sure that the first watch that we came out with was executed to the top degree. And each watch took almost four months to make uh, from from start to finish when we got to like assembly and finishing. So it's a really like intensive process. And at the end of it, you really see what it takes to make a watch and it was we want to keep it small so that we could learn as much from it and make sure that the ones that we did execute were to the the best of our ability i'm not even going to try to explain the (laughs) uh the project one watch uh you you just need to go look at the article on the blog to watch for barrel hand project one uh it's from 2020 it was my hands-on um really about just as you said, an innovative way of displaying the time as well as trying to find interesting mechanical motions and using these motions to create scales and things like that, which is a, a really fun thing that a lot of um, you know mechanical engineers do. Now, we're basically out of time. What can you tell us 
about the next barrel hand watch. I think it's the mm. the, the monolith. Uh, what, you know, when, when when will I be able to see something? Uh, just what do you want to say about it? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about it off the air too. Um, we're we've been working on it for the past two years. So as we were uh, starting to do production of Project One, we were already working on the next project, and we've been pretty. Uh, secretive about it it's we've been kind of keeping it under wraps for the last two years um but we're going to start documenting it the same way we did for project one so we want we want people to see the process we want people to see all the the parts and step steps involved in making it happen um but i'm super excited about it we're basically taking the learnings from project one and putting it into uh of kind of purpose-driven project, you could say. So we're trying to make something that's a little bit more accessible than Project One was, but uh, still taking all the learnings and the technology involved um, so that uh, it can be put towards something that's uh, functional instead of kind of artistic concept piece. I'm I'm so excited to hear about that. And then um, what, do you, what do you want to plug? Where can people follow along? What do you want them to check out? Unfortunately, there's no barrel hand watch you can buy right now as far as I know. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just what's, what do you want to plug? Yeah, yeah. Um, if you want to check out our website, it's just barrelhand.com. And then um, we have a newsletter, but it's mostly for just major updates. Um, so if you want to see kind of the, the weekly things we're working on and, and what's coming next, I would check out our Instagram. It's just at barrel hand and that we're document. We're going to be starting to document more regularly with uh, posts of what's to come and uh, kind of the, the whole process of making monolith. Thank you so much. This has been my interview with Karel Boshand of Barrel Hand Watches. Karel, this has been uh, just really interesting and um, we're going to have to have you come back again for more of a discussion. Thank you so much. Ariel, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit a blog2watch.com. <laughs>